Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we're here today to answer questions about meditation practice and Buddhism in our tradition with an emphasis on questions that have practical importance. So if you have questions, you can already start to ask them in the chat. don't have any questions, just try to stay mindful. First 15 minutes will be silent meditation, so you can either do walking or sitting, or walking and sitting, and we will come back and begin to answer questions at 15 minutes after the hour.
All right, we're back. From here on, we will ask that only questions be posted in the chat. Anything that's not a question will just be removed. If you have questions, continue to ask. If you don't have questions, just sit back and listen mindfully. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. I am trying to let go of an ex-partner who left me, and I am able to locate a strong pain in my chest when I try to let go. How can I be more successful in overcoming this pain through meditation? Mm -hmm. So trying to let go, this is a perennial problem, and it's... Um, It's kind of a paradox of sorts. I mean, it's it's wrong-headed. If you think about it for a second, you can hopefully appreciate that trying and letting go are, are not really compatible. If you're trying to do something, you're not letting go of it. So that's never a good idea. What you should try to do is see clearly. Try to change your perspective from trying to fix problems to trying to understand experiences. Pain is an experience. You should also uh, move away from associating experiences. So associating pain with trying to let go or associating pain with... Um, something, the loss of a partner. And finally, pain isn't something to be overcome. Uh, we use that word often incorrectly. What you really are probably referring to is trying to get rid of the pain. Or trying to get rid of the... The one thing you're not mentioning here is the sadness or the dislike of the, the feeling, the clinging, the wanting and the wishing. And it's important that you, it's important that you're not mentioning it because it's a sign that you're probably not as confrontational as you should be. Mindfulness is about confronting things. Well, maybe confronting is not the right way. Facing. So you're probably not facing it as you should. Rather than trying to get rid of something or quote-unquote let go, try to understand. Because letting go actually means letting come as well. It means no longer being disturbed by something. So you should do that for the pain, you should do that for the feelings of yearning, desire, longing, sadness, and uh, upset that come. I don't know if you read our booklet, but that might be a good place to start. Uh, you could do our at-home course, that's a great way to get a foundation in mindfulness practice. All of these things are freely available on our website, so... Go ahead and check that out. I wish you all the best. I took a break from formal meditation practice and now find that there is a lot of resistance to starting again. I always tell myself I'll start tomorrow, but never do. Can you please give advice? Yeah, telling yourself you're going to do something tomorrow is usually a bad idea. I mean, it's not... It's, uh, a bad way to begin you have to begin now mindfulness do it now if you if you do end up ever doing it now you should be able to see how much easier it is once you actually begin it um but i guess the most pointed advice would be to note the resistance take the resistance as a meditation object resistance isn't perhaps as accurate as you could be uh you have to Focus on what is the actual resistance. So there can be a version. If you were to say, 
I'm going to do meditation right now. What would what would arise in the mind? I should note that if there's a disliking of it, uh, an aversion to the idea of meditating, that sort of thing. Once you begin, it gets easier, but you really do have to do it now. Uh, another good way to gain a, a solid foundation is to actually do an intensive course. I don't know if you've done our at-home course, but try to find a way to do an intensive course at a center. That intensive practice really makes it a lot more trivial to do daily practice. It's a lot less uh, onerous because, of course, you've done many more hours and you're you're familiar with doing many hours of practice. When the mind moves to its object during noting, that union of mind and object can be shallow or deep until the next object arises is it beneficial to try to dwell more deeply with the object? So as I said, trying is generally a bad idea, unless it's trying to seem clearly. Even that's probably not a good way to phrase it. You're either applying mindfulness or you're not. The seeing clearly isn't even something you can control. Um, yeah, the Buddha, for these sorts of things, the Buddha was pretty clear about Noting if it's shallow, noting if it's deep. You wanting it to be deeper isn't actually going to accomplish anything. It's, it just creates more ego, more attachment, more identification as as you being a doer rather than an observer. And the idea here is to be an observer too, so you can understand. All you need is understanding. That is really the only thing you you should be focusing on. How can I... Uh, understand things. It was quite simple. The answer is by watching them. So shallow or deep, you can note that. And you can notice that there's. it's unpredictable whether it's going to be shallow or deep. I meditate, but more in the present moment than in a designated time. Is this appropriate? I also find that in the moment I need the piece of meditation the most. Is this acceptable? I mean, I'm not going to reject you for it, but um, you, you you kind of have to be asking whether it's acceptable in, in context. Is it acceptable uh, in, in an at-home meditation course or in an intensive meditation course? Um, do I think it leads to enlightenment? I think the answer is, to all of those is really no. Um, I mean, we have to start with the fact that you say you're meditating, and I can guess that it might be in our tradition, but on the other hand, it might not be. And so the first thing you have to understand is that not all meditation is the same. In fact, every meditation is different for the fact that it is a different meditation and could potentially have different results, different emphasis, different focus. A lot of meditation is just focused on peace. It sounds like you might be a practicing, if not a technique that is meant to lead to peace, you may just be practicing with the expectation of finding peace. And maybe you don't find that in formal meditation, and so that's why you're not doing it, or something like that. But you do need more details in that regard. But I will say that um, meditation isn't designed to bring peace directly. It's designed to bring clarity. The resulting peace from meditation isn't, isn't, isn't often what people think it is. So there is a peace that should come any, any moment that you meditate, any moment that you're mindful. And you may, be, you may understand this, so, but without context, I have to be clear, that make clear that... Um, it can be quite chaotic. And if your emphasis is on trying to find peace, or if you somehow need the peace, um, which may not be what you're saying, but then you have to look at that as well, the desire for the peace, the attachment to it. Um, that being said, there's nothing about your statement that in that, well, that's wrong. It's just lacking in specifics. But um, it's absolutely incredible that you're practicing in the moment that's of course an, 
um, ideal situation. The biggest reason for doing formal meditation is that while it is possible to say you're meditating and believe you're meditating in the present moment, it's much harder in practice to actually be mindful every moment of every day. And so formal meditation provides a more conducive uh, circumstance in which to develop the skill of mindfulness, which then, of course, helps you be more mindful in daily life as well. So for practical purposes, pretty much everyone anywhere who begins to practice meditation will need to do formal practice. It's a very rare person, possibly not even existent in modern times, who can actually make progress without formal meditation. And maybe that's pushing it too far. There are special people in the world. Thinking that you are one doesn't make you one, though. Um, it's, it's, it's really unreasonable to think that you're so special that you don't need to take the time to train. Unless, of course, you are that special person. How should we deal with holiday distractions while meditating? Well, there's nothing there's nothing special about holiday distractions. Um, though I guess the assumption or the implication of what you're the suggestion that you're you're implying is that there's going to be perhaps more distractions, uh, probably related to socializing, I suppose. There's nothing else in the holiday. I mean, well, I suppose there's consumerism might be distracting to want to buy things, buy gifts for yourself or others. Um, might be other kind, but you're probably talking about people. That's, I think, the big holiday distraction. So dealing with people is a important concern, but there's nothing special particularly about the holidays. It just probably means more interaction. So. How do you deal with that? Well, obviously the ideal way to deal with it is to not have to deal with it, to have to live in seclusion, to not engage in holiday distractions. Uh, but the other thing I guess I would say is calling something a distraction is a bit um, misguided you're better off to take them as experiences because calling something a distraction is gives the idea that it is a thing that takes you away from something else right and in mindfulness practice of course nothing really fits that category if you're distracted it means you're not focusing on something but holiday things that experiences surrounding the holiday aren't going to be distractions they're just going to be experiences and so through the cultivation of mindfulness you should be able to uh, apply the same principles and if you've read our booklet that's a good place to start do the at-home course or come to uh, well i won't be here well it will be i guess come to our center and you can meditate over the holidays I'm leaving on the 30th, but I'll be here till then. I always used to experience severe anxiety when I am around people. During meditation, I'm able to note my anxiety to some extent, and it helps me calm my nerves. When I am in actual social situations, I am not able to note my anxiety like I do while meditating, and my body and face reacts wildly, announcing my anxiety to others. Do you have any advice to help? Well, one thing besides the more obvious um, ideas around anxiety is the identification. The, uh, one of the big problems with being around people is you tend to become very self-conscious. I mean, we tend to become self-conscious. It's a common thing. And so when you call something my anxiety, when you talk about how your body and face reacts and announces things, I mean, you have to, to some extent, take on the attitude of who cares. You have to change your attitude. Well, you have to recognize that you care and that that is the cause of suffering. If someone notices that you're anxious, that's not 
problem. That's not actually a cause of suffering for you. Until you have some kind of wish or expectation for how people see you, you want people to think of you as not anxious. You want people to think of you as calm. You 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 want people to to see you as collected, as a person who has everything together. And it's that desire and that expectation and that that wish that that is unfulfilled, not getting what you want, leads to stress and suffering. And it, it of course makes the anxiety worse because you're anxious about getting anxious, right? So that is um, beyond the obvious. That is something for you to keep in mind. But the more obvious. Um, aspects of this are dealing with anxiety. And, I mean, that's a good example of the sort of meta-anxiety, the anxiety that leads to anxiety. But this, in general, is a problem with anxiety, is that it easily snowballs. You get anxious about your anxiety. You get anxious about the experiences in the body. Uh, we take them, as we identify them with anxiety, but they are not anxiety. So one useful part of mindfulness is to be able to separate things and see what you're actually experiencing. Physical sensations are not anxiety, and you don't need to make that connection, even though it's pretty uh, easy to make the connection. Take them individually. So when you feel something physically, like butterflies in your stomach or the heart beating fast, rather than trying to get rid of it, thinking it's anxiety, try and take it as an object and just be mindful of it while it's there. Uh, as for the aspect of not being, as for the part of your question about not being able to be mindful, it's not it's not a binary. It's not that you are able in one situation and not in another. You have to recognize that that it's harder, probably many orders of magnitude harder. Uh, but it is possible. It's more more feasible with practice or with training, which you get from formal meditation practice. So. It's a good way to test whether you're well trained. Have you done enough formal practice? Are you are you skilled enough in mindfulness that you're actually able to be mindful in, in situations that are more challenging? Uh, I think these sort of two aspects: the one is the being trained and skilled, and the other is realigning your perspective of what it means to be in a a, a situation, a social situation away from being concerned or interested in, in how other people see you or how you present yourself. Uh, try to see it instead just as an, uh, an ordinary experience because there is nothing categorically different about being around people and being alone. You still have experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking, and there's nothing else in reality. So if you can gain that sort of sense of perspective and see that there is nothing special about these experiences, that nothing that happens to you is going to be of any consequence until you react to it. That's a great way to change the, well, to break free from the loop that leads to anxiety. Even though I understand the wisdom and can see things clearly, I still keep making the bad decisions for myself, falling into pleasures, addiction. How can I do better or get a better grip on my will? Yeah, it's just not the right attitude to take. You have to change that attitude. Look at it, try to look at it in a different way. Um, what, what you're seeing is, is helpful. But only if you look at it, only if you appreciate the, the truth of it. Uh, so rather than trying to change the fact that you can't control the way your mind works and the choices that you make, try and appreciate how out of control they are and observe that and watch them and watch the responses and try to become overall more mindful of that process. Don't have any concern with trying to make yourself a better person or you know stop yourself from doing this. Just try and understand your bad habits. You'll see how helpful that is, how how effective that is at changing bad habits, uh, changing your whole perspective on life, 
much of which uh, contributes to bad habits. Seeing that you're not in control, seeing that it's just this uh, unwieldy thing that you've created, this habit to, to react to things and so on, uh, is the basis for freedom from it. If you're able to understand the nature of your experience and your reactions to your experiences, you'll never have to get any grip on anything. You'll, you'll be much more about letting go. It's, it's us getting grip on things, trying to get grips on things that leads us to making bad decisions and fall into pleasures and addictions. So it's just another desire. You, you can't apply the desire to the practice. You just have to apply mindfulness to see clear and, and create understanding. So, so I guess that the other thing I would say is that it's great that you understand some things, but first of all, understanding wisdom is an odd thing to say because understanding is wisdom. You're not meant to understand wisdom. You're meant to understand with wisdom something else, uh, preferably ultimate reality or, or actual reality. That's what you're meant to understand. And so uh, if you were actually seeing things clearly, you would not make bad decisions because the only way to make a, to, to fall into pleasures and addiction is through delusion. So you might want to um, lower your estimation of yourself as well, as well, in that sense. I mean, it doesn't sound like you're egotistical or anything, but be careful about dismissing the importance of understanding as something you already have when clearly you don't have it. I heard that when one gets deep in meditation practice, One's past karma can bear fruit. Does this mean there may be events in the world that come about from meditation, or are worldly events unrelated? One's past karma um, might bear fruit at any time. There is a sense that when you clear out obstacles to karma, um, things that might be uh, delaying the effects. Meditation can clear some of that out, and so bad karma, good karma can potentially come come into effect sooner, uh, more powerfully, that sort of thing. But I don't know how that relates exactly to the second to your actual question. I mean, it sounds kind of speculative in a sense. I wouldn't worry about it. the The most important thing to the the most important takeaway from the idea of karma or cause and effect is in terms of how your actions now are creating effects appreciating that and trying to have a better perspective on things so that you don't give rise to more bad karma as far as what happened in the past and what results might come from it it's not really that useful It's quite a distraction. I do walking meditation in the forest, and I know that I am killing ants because I am not looking down. Now I feel remorseful because of killing. Should I always look down when I walk in nature? I think within reason you should be reasonable about it. You don't know that you're killing ants, but if you don't ever look down, then you you very well might. So it can be quite uh, reasonable to pay attention to where you're walking. Um, I don't know what kind of walking meditation you do in the forest, but it is for that sort of reason uh, advisable to do it in a place where there won't be ants either a place that's covered in sand or an actual, um, some sort of construct, wooden platform or something. We mostly recommend, well, we, we, we definitely, in our tradition, uh, instruct meditators to do walking and sitting in the same location, and so usually preferable to do it inside of a building where you can walk and sit. I mean, of course, you can do them both outside, but 
you should have some kind of a place that isn't going to create distractions like that. So it should be a a wooden or some you know some sort of artificial flooring where you can avoid uh, not just ants and insects but also sticks and that sort of thing. Is there a timetable when a human passes on and reincarnates? So humans don't reincarnate. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And there's no such thing as the body. The body is just a concept. There are experiences. And a part of the process of experience is the uh, taking up of a new existence. But the body forms around that existence or not um some exists some types of existence are purely mental there's fine material as well but the reality of things is the mind and its experience of physical and mental phenomena and this happens momentarily arises and ceases that doesn't ever change Buddhism takes a perspective of experiential reality, not one with concepts. If the body is just a concept, then shouldn't it be fine to kill? It is, in fact. Um, the, the act of killing is not a problem. It's the qualities of mind related to the act of killing. Because you are disrupting someone else's experience. You are taking away from someone something that they want, you are um, forcing them into a situation that they don't want or that they haven't asked for. You, or, or even if they did ask for it, in the case of assisted suicide, you're helping them do something that is not in their best, best interest as a human being. Uh, or as even as an animal, death is a real hardship. It's um, it's a cause for great stress and trauma. And if if brought about unnaturally, it is pretty much well, almost in, almost inevitably uh, un undesirable, unpleasant, you know, leading to to suffering and stress and, and a bad rebirth for the most part, just because it's so traumatic and shocking and unexpected, unprepared, right? Unless you're practicing mindfulness, of course. There's probably a lot better preparation in that case. But uh, yeah, the act of killing itself isn't the problem acts are not the buddha taught against the the efficacy of action like physical action or verbal action the buddha said it's uh, it's the state of mind so the problem with killing is that it inevitably involves this um un well, deluded ignorant uh, unenlightened state of mind this corrupt state of mind if it's killing someone against their will, then of course it's very corrupt. If it's towards their will or, or with their with their by their request or something, then it's out of delusion and ignorance, and it's still incredibly harmful. So those corrupt states of mind are going to stay with you for a long time. It's kind of absurd if you if you if you've never had an experience of killing, it's easy to be blasé about it, but Anyone who's had any any experience, not with killing a human being necessarily, but killing animals, that sort of thing, it it really is a horrific thing. Changes you.
Sometimes disliking arises, but I'm not exactly sure what thoughts triggered it, which triggers more curious thinking. Is it important to map out exactly what thoughts triggered the disliking? No. No particulars and 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 uh, specific instances are not important. What is important is that you start to see more clearly things like relationships, but there's never going to be a need to seek them out or map them out or that sort of thing. Um, the the only the best way to appreciate relationships is to stick with uh, actual experiences because the relationships will be seen as a result of that. We never recommend to go looking for trying to understand relationships. You don't have to go out of your way to see anything. You just have to look. When trying to cultivate clear comprehension in daily life, is there any advantage to retaining a peripheral awareness of the breath when doing actions like studying Dhamma? So there's no such thing as a peripheral awareness. Uh, what you're probably creating is weak awareness, but it's still exclusive. So you, there's a back and forth, and what you're doing there is likely cultivating some distraction which is is you know because you're not focusing on one thing at a time so that is not a great habit to cultivate um what's probably better is uh well first of all to note uh emotions and those sorts of things because those can get out of hand but second to take breaks and to not do long sessions of study but take the time to take a break to focus on mindfulness but at the very least um, peripheral awareness is not your best your best bet if you're going to stop even for just a moment to close your eyes and meditate I mean it's a great thing when studying to take intermittent breaks once you read something and, and it reminds you of something important then you can take a moment to close your eyes and focus on the present moment because the Dhamma inspires you and then go back even if it's just for a moment it should be decisive and and clear so yeah no peripheral is pretty much across the board discouraged can enlightenment bring about supernormal powers apinya developed in previous existences well it doesn't bring them about but yes if you develop them in previous existences it seems to be a good reason for them to arise again after you know enlightenment just clears the mind so profoundly that uh, any habitual qualities of the mind from the past are are, are given are, are given a chance a greater chance to come up so if you have the habitual capacity or the the, the cultivated capacity to you know, for example, see things far away, uh, hear things far away, leave your body, have out-of-body experiences, these sorts of things, then uh, enlightenment will not make them more likely to happen, but make it more likely that you are able for them to happen. I, I think in many cases it's still, you just wouldn't bother with them, but in certain circumstances it might happen that you make use of them. What are the consequences of speaking untrue words without harmful or serious intent? So intent isn't really the most important factor. We were talking about that this morning in our study group. Because the word intent is a bit misleading. Um, we use that word often to describe what we're talking about, but state of mind is more clear. Because the state of mind can change, but your intent as you see it might not change. Like you might, when you think about, okay, I'm going to speak these words and my intention is such and such, my intention is harmful, or my intention is serious, or my intention is not. Uh, or you think, well, I didn't have any intention, I didn't make any conscious intention, I just spoke uh, without thinking. So you, when you think of that, you think that there was one intention and that's not accurate. 
that that's one way of describing it that you had a thought that you consider to be your intention but state of states of mind change from moment to moment the problem with things like lying or killing or any of these things is that they are by their very nature uh, dependent upon unwholesomeness it depends on unwholesomeness to pervert reality now saying something is not true isn't the same as lying you have to know that it's true and intend to deceive someone intend for someone else to um, to understand that to misunderstand to understand that which is not true to be true you have to have the intent to mislead you, know, you have to have the the quality of mind that uh, is misleading manipulative that sort of thing so and of course there are mitigating factors or or whatever the opposite of mitigating is there is another word for it can't remember um if you are malicious about it of course which is the sort of thing you're you're alluding to then that of course creates more karma but the thing about karma you have to understand so consequences are not not about the speaking consequences are in every moment every experience you have when you think i'm going to manipulate this person you don't have to think it but when you have the quality of mind that arises wanting to manipulate someone when you have the quality of mind arises that wants to hurt someone through your manipulation every moment that that arises is karmic and will have consequences and of course so the many moments when when that arise be, become uh, a powerful force but it's not just one karma when you say something or do something it's many moments some could be wholesome some could be unwholesome should we no, stay exten extenuating isn't the opposite of mitigating there's an opposite to mitigating it's a, i'm sure i know the word shall i go on to the next question go ahead should we stay in the city and work with defilements within distractions noise people work etc or go to the forest secluded with better conditions ultimately is there any difference yeah it's going to be easier in the forest there's no real benefit with to staying in the city but it is certainly possible the thing is it's not it's much less about being in the city or being in the forest than it is about your actual circumstances right because someone can live in the city and never leave their room for example in which case there's really no uh there's really no downside or no consequences living in the city. On the other hand, you could live in the forest, surrounded by people, although you say secluded, so okay, forest secluded, but that's really the more important factor, whether you're secluded or not, whether it's in the city or in the forest. One thing about the forest is it's more peaceful, right? Simply because it's less jarring to our senses. We find the forest more peaceful because there's so much unfamiliar and, and and harshness to our sights and sounds and smells they're much more extreme and harsh generally speaking in in artificial surroundings or in city surroundings that sort of thing so it's going to be a lot easier to practice if you're in the forest for a beginner it pretty quickly becomes inconsequential as you get better at being mindful and you start to realize well that's actually not that big of a of an important factor but it can be helpful be in the forest for sure it's just one of many things that makes a small impact on your practice aggravating i think is the word according to buddhist view do we know if AI has the potential for consciousness? This is a practical question. What if it's a possible rebirth? It 
So it's it's horribly, horribly misleading to think that what they're calling AI, or you know, AI, it's an accurate uh, name, I guess, has anything to do with consciousness. Um, and and it really kind of belies a misunderstanding of reality to think such a thing. I mean, it's is reasonable, and of course, this question comes up in non-Buddhist circles, it comes up in Buddhist circles. But that that configuration of a algorithm, I mean, all you're doing is anthropomorphizing code. I mean, what, what is code? What is, it's just binary. It's actually just ones. It's not even ones and zeros. It's just um, different states of silicon or something. It's it's electric. It's involving electricity and that sort of thing. None of which has anything, anything whatsoever to do with consciousness. Now, is it possible to consider the arising of existence based on a artificial substrat? Right, because we we consider that a mind becomes involved with a uh, egg and a sperm, and the conjunction involves the mind as well. So could that happen artificially? It's a much better question, but again, it has nothing to do with algorithms and machine learning and that sort of thing. That, that all is complete red herring. It's nothing to do with consciousness. Um, and, I mean, the answer to that other question is I, I really have no idea. I, th I think yes, technically possible, but one thing to note is that they're not so disconnected as we might think. The 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 um, conjunction between the sperm, the egg, and the mind kind of come about in tandem, and it's not just choosing which womb to enter, that sort of thing. It's much more um, involved. And so could there be an involved process that is something other than that? I think the answer is obviously yes. We call be certain, some beings like that uh, devas, like ruka devas. There are devas are angels that uh, embody trees, for example. So it's just important to understand to, to, to understand how far that sort of question is from the actual truth of reality. I mean, it's just AI, AI is meaningless for for the question of consciousness. When I learned about the 12 links, I was surprised to see that consciousness results from ignorance. Is there a positive view of consciousness that householders can have? <laughs> There's no positive view of consciousness, sorry. Um, okay, I see what you're maybe getting at is, okay, that's harsh, and, and I'm not sure I can swallow that yet. Is there something a little watered down that I can appreciate better? Well, there are, of course, wholesome consciousnesses and unwholesome consciousnesses, and um, you should, of course, focus on wholesome consciousnesses, and most importantly, wholesome consciousnesses associated with wisdom. Of course, those wholesome consciousnesses associated with it, wisdom have a lot to do with seeing that consciousness is not positive, not a thing to be clung to, not something that you should desire or seek out. It's also not something you should be averse to, because there is the mistake that some spiritual teachers or, or practitioners make is to try and stop being conscious. So they have an aversion, they cultivate an aversion to consciousness. And so that likewise is a problem. But what's most scary, I think, is our attachment is, about this is because we have an attachment to consciousness. And uh, so there's a gradual teaching, and the gradual teaching starts with the cultivation of wholesome consciousnesses. As you develop wholesome consciousnesses, you'll start to get a better perspective, you'll have a clearer mind, and so you'll be less clingy to consciousness and less disturbed by the idea of not being conscious. Thank you, Bhante. We've crossed the hour and answered every top-tier question. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you everyone for your questions. Thank you for Jim and Edit and Chris for helping out. You're welcome. Have a good week, everyone. Sad. Sad.